Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and you know how I always bang on about going to the show notes? Go to the show notes, SohoBitesPodcast.com. There's loads of stuff there you'll be interested in. It's never occurred to me before to actually go to the website and have a look how many visitors the site gets. So I went along, had a look, and as well as seeing the number of visitors the site gets... It also interestingly tells you where in the world they come from. And as you'd expect, most of the visitors come from the UK and some from Ireland and Canada and English-speaking countries, a few other countries dotted about the world. But a couple of days ago, I had 38 unique hits from Peru. And I am very curious as to why that would be. So if you are a listener in Peru, could you get in touch and tell me why you're listening to a programme about film set in a small part of one city? in one small country uh, thousands of miles away. That'd be great. Get in touch and let me know. Anyway, everybody is very welcome, of course. And this month, we're looking at a film called Good Time Girl from 1948, starring the so-called bad girl of British film, Jean Kent. It's the cautionary tale of Gwen Rawlings, a young woman who has the cards stacked against her from the very start and who, through a series of poor decisions, mainly around which men in her life to trust, ends up in deeper and deeper trouble. It's partly a social problem film and partly a film noir, which is why I spoke to James Harrison about it. James has recently set up Film Noir UK, the newest and in fact only organisation in the UK dedicated to screening noir films. You can hear a bit about Film Noir UK and James's take on Good Time Girl in the second half of the show. And in the first half, I'll be talking about the star of the film, Jean Kent, with Josephine Botting. Joe is one of the curators at the BFI National Archive and actually met Jean Kent on her 90th birthday back in 2011. Jean Kent's 90th birthday, that is, not Josephine Botting's, just to be clear. And we'll be hearing from Joe all about Jean Kent in a few moments' time. Back in the 1940s, Gainsborough Studios had a stable of glamorous female stars, including Margaret Lockwood, Phyllis Calvert and Patricia Rock, or as my friend Adam would say... Patricia Rock. Sorry, what was that, Adam? Patricia Rock. 
Yeah, thought so. He's a bit of a fan. A slightly later addition to the fold was Gene Kent, who, after a period of working on stage, including a couple of years at Soho's Windmill Theatre and a few minor roles in wartime comedy films, joined Gainsborough in 1944. She became a firm favourite with the public almost straight away, with her appearance as Phyllis Calvert's flighty friend, Lucy, in 1944's Fanny by Gaslight. This role set the tone for several of her parts to come, and she often played young, flirtatious women who were mildly naughty, so she quickly picked up this unofficial title of Britain's bad girl. In 1944's 2000 Women, Jean plays a nightclub stripper, and Phyllis Calvert plays a decent, upstanding Englishwoman, both of whom are held in a German internment camp. According to a 1989 interview with Jean Kent, she and Phyllis Calvert had wanted to swap roles, but the studio didn't allow this, thus ensuring that the bad girl label stuck. To find out more about Jean Kent, I met up with Josephine Botting. Joe is one of the curators at the BFI, and I think it's fair to say is an admirer of Jean Kent's. We met at the BFI offices on Stephen Street, just off Tottenham Court Road, and I began by asking her for a bit of detail about the early life of the star of Good Time Girl, Jean Kent. Jean Kent was born uh, Joan Mildred Summerfield on the 29th of June 1921. Uh, and she was born in Brixton, but that was just purely coincidental because her parents were theatrical types. Uh, her mother was a ballet dancer, her father was a harpist, and so they were constantly on tour. So she was born in theatrical digs, where her parents were lodging at the time. She grew up then around theatre people. She toured around UK and Europe with her family. Uh, she learned to dance, um, went into the business at a very early age, doing various jobs, including a conjurer's assistant at one point. I, I can't imagine that she would have really done anything else than go into the business because that was, it was all around her as she grew up. Yeah, and she had a, she did a sense as a windmill girl, didn't she? She was a windmill girl for a while. Yeah, at the age of thirteen, apparently, uh, she oh, borrowed yeah. a it makes my knees borrow, go wobbly when I think but, about it. Yeah, them. borrowed a, a birth certificate off off a cousin or a friend or something, and um, managed to get a job doing that. But I I gather that she didn't last very long because she never she never did the nude tableau for which the windmill was was so famous for. So this must have been in the mid thirties that she was doing that. But apparently Vivian Van Damme didn't think she had sufficient personality, which clearly <laughs> he, was, he was proved wrong about in the Absolutely, yeah. And uh, what was her film break? How did she get into film? Well, I mean, it was a natural progression, I suppose. You know, she was, she was at the Palladium. She was a, a stooge for, for comics on stage. She was obviously a very good, light comedian. So she was at the Palladium with uh, Max Miller in 1939 and I guess it's just there was a lot of crossover you know a lot of film producers would be going to theatres to, to seek out new talent so I mean but she started out really doing very small parts just little cameos almost little song and dance numbers in things like uh, It's That Man Again in the early 40s so it was a very gradual kind of build up and it took her quite a long time actually to get bigger roles because she was she was certainly not a trained actress I mean I suspect that her education was very very patchy she may even have just been home educated because when you're traveling that much I don't imagine her schooling was particularly um, uh, you know involved and what was her breakout role then well she she I mean she went to Gainsborough and that was really her big 
you know, break. But she always said she was so she'd get the roles that other people didn't want because Gainsborough clearly had its major stars in place. You know, you had your Margaret Lockwood, Phyllis Calvert, Patricia Rock. They were the the big ones. So she sort of was a little bit younger. So she was five years younger than Margaret Lockwood. She sort of came in that little bit later, and she called herself the odds and sods girl. So she would do the roles that the other stars didn't really want. So you know, Phyllis Cowell, Patricia Rock may well feel they didn't want to be subsidiary to to Margaret Lockwood. They might feel that they deserved a starring role. Therefore, Jean Kent would slot into those smaller roles. And I don't think she particularly minded. I don't think she was. She doesn't strike me as being somebody who's massively ambitious for, for to have her name above the title in that sense. So she, she built her, her way up. And I think, I think one of the key roles is in 2000 Women, maybe, where she has a fantastic part in that film. And I will talk about it. It's one of my favourites. OK, actually. so that's on, the, that's on the official yeah, list, it is. Is it? it's on my list. So um, I think maybe that was the breakthrough. But I mean, again, something like Caravan, where she had a very showy role. I mean, she's not the main female character. Anne Crawford is the female lead. But she, she has these amazing gypsy costumes and, and dances, so I guess maybe that... that it was a poll done around the mid-40s about, about that time. And one of the questions was, which star or actor would you, in smaller roles, would you like to see more of? And she came top of that poll by a mile. So, oh, you know, people noticed her, as I said, because she had such a screen presence. And she, she exuded an enthusiasm and a vivacity on screen, I think, and people responded to that. She does a kind of almost a nude scene, isn't she, in Caravan, which is quite saucy. Yeah, yeah. Um, And this whole bad girl thing, which which I know you're kind of going to push back against slightly, uh, she does get called Britain's bad girl and that kind of thing. How did that come about? Because... It's not like, so Diana Dawes, who's in Good Time Girl, her personal life does in a way reflect that thing, but Jean Kemp was married, wasn't she, for 50 years so or Jean something? Kemp, yeah, she, she, she had a very happy marriage. She, she, she met and fell in love and married very quickly in 1946. She did have parts where she played the meaner characters, but as I said, that's because she was playing the sort of supporting roles mm. rather than the main roles, and the main roles were very rarely that kind of person. So she said, you know, I think she wanted to work. She liked working in films. She took what roles she was given. If we're talking about Good Time Girl as, you know, the main sort of focus of this, I don't think she is a, a, a bad girl per se in that. She's a girl who likes pretty things. She likes nice jewellery and nice clothes. And she, she just doesn't see why she can't have those things. Obviously, yeah, she's got a, an unpleasant home life, which probably wasn't that unusual either. Then she's basically exploited and led astray by, by nasty men. I mean, that, yeah, seems, that seems to be her, her main crime. Um, I, have a, I have a little theory about why she picked up that, that kind of title. And it's to do with the fact that... Because the other, the other women at the time... So there's Patricia Locke... Rock, sorry. <laughs> Margaret Locke, Rock. Yeah, 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 yeah. OK. We could roll them together. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Patricia, Patricia Rock, Margaret Lockwood and Phyllis Calvert. Yeah. And... Um, and Jean Kent, they're all very beautiful and everything. But Jean Kent has her sort of resting face is quite haughty. Uh, she has a sort of, sort of these arched eyebrows and that kind of thing. She, because she, Patricia Rock is this, she's a sort of sweet and virginal, and, and Phyllis Calvert to a certain extent as well. I think Jean Kent always looks slightly disdainful almost, but then her smile is absolutely radiant, it just breaks out. 
which is completely beguiling. And you can kind of see how in those times maybe that could be seen as like suspicious. I don't think that's how audiences reacted to her at all. I mean, Patricia Rock is an interesting one because she always played the smiley sweet girl, but that was definitely not the way she was in real life. No. But of course, the, you know, a lot of her private life was private. You know, she wasn't plastered all over the, the papers as Diana Dawes was because Diana Dawes wanted to be because mm. she felt that was... Obviously, we're talking a decade later as well, but she felt that was good publicity. So... You know the sort of the, the the image that you you paint of yourself is very interesting. But Jean Kent was just, you know, she was an actor. She she could play whatever role was given to her, and that's what just just what she did. So I don't agree about her resting face. Actually, I think what always to me comes across is her vivacity, her joie de vivre, her you know, and I think that's why people really responded to her so well. And of course, the other thing was that she had a massive fan club. She was hugely popular. Her, her collection is all at the BFI. Apparently, her, I mean, she was getting 17,000 letters a week at one point. Wow. She was massive, but she, she cultivated those people because I think genuinely she cared and was interested in those ordinary women and men who were, who were her fans. And she, she shared in her newsletter. She, so she and her husband bought a small holding in Suffolk, I think, outside London anyway. And, um, you know, she loved farming. She, you know, she was out in the, in the fields, um, she, but she was, oh, she was also very domesticated. So those are the things she wrote about, you know, ordinary things. She made lampshades and, you know, she, <laughs> she was very crafty, very domesticated. And she shared those, those things with her fans. And they, to them, she seemed like a person, a real person and like does them. it extend beyond her film peak? Is this going to the sort of 50s and 60s or is it just no, when she was No, not so height? much. We, this would be late for. 40s, that it, I mean, it, it definitely would have dwindled into the 50s. Um, but, you know, there were stories of, like, a, a two people who met through her fan club and got married, you know, and she, she, was, she would celebrate the things that, that her fans had done, you know, and, and, and congratulate them on raising money for the local hospital or whatever it happened to be. So she was... people. Of course, people love that. You know, they love to feel that she's a friend. This dwindling of her film career, what do you put that down to? Is it just the lack of roles in those times? It was various things. So she left her contract at Gainsborough. Now, the whole studio system in the UK and in in Hollywood as well was, was a mixed blessing because, yeah, it's great. Who would not want a guaranteed amount of money, guaranteed work for several years? You know, for an actor, especially after the war, that was a really attractive prospect. The payback is that you then have to do personal appearances. So you have to go around to the local Odeon in Blackburn and go on stage. And But she loved doing that. That's the thing. She was not squeamish about those things. She loved doing the personal appearances. She said she always used to take her own bouquet just in case they forgot one. You know, she, I mean, she was... She was <laughs> This was what she did. She was a she was a stage performer. You know, she loved going to meet people and being there. So, but the the, the downside, of course, of the studio system was that you had to do take the roles that they gave you, basically. And I think maybe she felt that was restrictive. Possibly she felt she wanted to do some more serious roles, and she did that. So she worked. She did two films with Anthony Asquith, and I mean, people say that because the roles she took. In 1950 and, yeah, the, the two films she made for Asquith in the early 50s. People say that she played characters older than her actual age and that it kind of ruined her girl-next-door fun-loving modern image. 
who knows? I mean, I think one of the other big problems was that the 1950s was not a good decade for female actors across the board. There were lots of war films being made, so plenty of sort of very strong male roles. But for women, women mostly got parts in domestic dramas. There were lots of films looking at the family and marriage, which obviously in the post-war years, after a time when women had been taking men's jobs, it was, a, it was something that I think was being reflected in the cinema, this whole, you know, what is the role of a, of a woman post-war? And I think, but the, there were not great parts. And so what are the three, the top three, Joe Botting, I'll play... Um, Sound of the Golden Disc at this point. The, uh, My top three. Well, it's tough because I liked lots of them. But um, her first film for Anthony Asquith, my top number one top film is The Woman in Question, which was her first film for Anthony Asquith, which I don't know if you've watched. I've not in this. I watched it about maybe six years ago. It's, I mean, it's, a, it's such a good film and what a great role. And again, this is one that people say she looked too dowdy in it or too, you know, too old and haggard in it but it doesn't sound like much of a role when you describe the film because she plays a woman who's been murdered but uh, as the story unfolds you get different people's views of her. It's a Rashomon thing isn't it? When they yeah, all, yeah yeah exactly so um, she's being described by different people in her life to the police and uh, as they try to get to the bottom of it and obviously in each description she plays herself in a completely different way and I think I think it was the pinnacle of her acting career and if anybody wants a crash course in Jean Kent you'd, I would definitely say to start there. The second one is 2000 Women which she doesn't have a massive part in but it's 2000 Women is definitely one of my favourite British films ever. She plays a stripper who basically in order to get herself a private room in this so there, there's it's a 2000 Women interned in a in an old castle. Chateau thing yeah, isn't it? Yeah in France yeah and it's wonderful because it's got fantastic female parts in it and and all the women in it are wonderful and it's just a great ensemble piece so she she's cozying up to the german guards in order to get special privileges and some privacy Uh, and they all think that she's the one who's betraying them to the germans but but she's not she turns out to be a good egg in the end despite her slightly dubious morals <laughs> and has a fight scene which is quite shocking yeah. I mean it's not just like a kind of those kind of girly cat fights it's quite brutal fight well of course she had one in um, well there's one in um, Good, Good Time, Time Girl, Girl as yeah. well which, which was which shocked the mm. the, the the home office they were not happy with the way that reform schools were being portrayed in good <laughs> yeah. time girl at all questions were raised almost in the house but I, I love that film and my third one is actually a film we've mentioned already caravan the first time i saw it was years ago now and i watched it here on a, on a film in the basement and i watched it with <clears throat> a couple of colleagues one of whom is not a big fan of british cinema and and they went Ooh, at the end they went oh god and i i just thought did we watch the same film because <laughs> I love this. We've got Dennis Price in it. Anything with Dennis Price yeah. in it is, is, is a big... He's such a rotter. Oh, he's, got some, he's got some <laughs> fabulous lines. I mean, it's just marvellous. Just... So basically, then, when uh, a friend of mine knew Jean Kent very well, and he said, well, let's celebrate her 90th birthday. So I said, we need to show Caravan because <laughs> she's great in that. So she plays this fabulous Spanish gypsy who rescues Stuart Granger... Um, who's been attacked by bandits and and nurses him and falls in love with him, obviously, and then sacrifices herself dramatically at the end. I mean, what a fantastic part. And she really gives it her all. So I said, I suggested we show Caravan, and her reaction was, 
Yes, that would be amazing because that's one of my favourite films because that's where I met my husband. Mm. So her husband of many, many years, he was an, an, a stand-in, I think, for Stuart Granger in the, or some of the horse riding scenes. And by all accounts, Stuart Granger was kind of, you know, making eyes at, at Jean during the <laughs> filming. And she was like, I'm not interested. <laughs> He's the one for me. So um, <clears throat> so they met and fell in love on that film. And uh, they had a very, very long and happy marriage. Wasn't Stuart Granger the best man or something? He had some I think he might have been, actually. Yes, I think, I think you could be right. Yes, that they were clearly friends. But... Um, and then you met Jean movie. Kent at the, at the BFI. As, uh, this is when you were screening the caravan. So, yes, yeah, so this was her 90th. Um, so we're talking, obviously, 2011. She came to the BFI from... She was still living in the country. Then she stayed living, even after her husband died, she stayed living in the house they'd had together. And, uh, yeah, she came down, and it was fabulous. It was, very, it was a very full house in the big screen at the South Bank, NFT1. And she came up, she gave a little talk... And she was just wonderful. She was just so modest and un unassuming and so delighted. And my friend who was introducing her, Michael Thornton, he got everyone to sing happy birthday. And it was just a really joyous occasion. And, and she was lovely. Yeah, I met her. We had a sort of, you know, little gathering afterwards in the, in the, in the green room. And she was just, just so natural and, and happy to be there. I mean, she, she, she looked, I have to say, she looked quite different. And she did look a bit very sort of, I don't, it's going to sound horrible, but a bit like a farmer's wife. <laughs> but that, I mean that in a nice way. <laughs> she sort of she 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 was still glamorous, but she she just sort of um, she she was obviously very comfortable in herself. Well, there you have it. The official Josephine Botting top three Jean Kent films are The Woman in Question from 1950, Two Thousand Women from 1944, and 1946's Caravan. And because she's Josephine Botting from the BFI, that's the British Film Institute, she's actually speaking on behalf of the British nation and probably the Queen. And I'd like to add to that list the Browning version from 1951 because it's an all-round great film. And even though the character Jean plays is cruel and spiteful, she manages to give us insight into why she acts the way she does and perhaps make us feel sympathy for her. And of course, Good Time Girl, because it's today's featured film and it's a belter. Many thanks to Jo for coming on the show. You can follow her and the BFI on Twitter, and many of the films she mentioned are available to view online. Details about all of these are, of course, on the show notes, which you will find at SohoBitesPodcast.com. And a big shout-out to the Peruvian Massif. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bikes takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. Good Time Girl was released in the UK in 1948 and was written by husband and wife power team Sydney and Muriel Box 
based on the novel Night Darkens the Streets by Arthur Laburn. Laburn has quite an interesting CV, having also written It Always Rains on Sunday, which was made into a fantastic film by Ealing, and Goodbye Piccadilly, Farewell Leicester Square, upon which Alfred Hitchcock's 1972 shocker Frenzy was based. See Soho Bites episode 3 for details. As with other films in this period that involve women and crime, there's a conflict between the desire to make meaningful social commentary and the temptation to drift into salaciousness and melodrama. The film opens in a juvenile court where a kindly copper, played by George Merritt, has come to ask the magistrate, played by Flora Robson, for a favour. He's concerned about a girl from his patch and he doesn't want her to go down the same path as Gwen Rawlings, a similar girl from similar circumstances who, we gather, had ended up on the wrong side of the law. Could I speak to you for a moment, Miss Thorpe? Of course, Sergeant. What about? I wonder if you see a kid we've just brought in. Boy? No, girl. What's the charge? Well, I don't want a charge if I can help it. Thought you might talk some sense into her first. What's she been up to? Hanging around the streets of the small hours most nights. Why, surely you can cope with that. I have so far, but now she swears she won't go home at all. Can't budge her. Any reason? Says she's fed up to the back teeth, wants to live on her own. Uh, what's the home like? A pretty bad. Six in the family. Father likes his drop and mother copped it in the blitz. Left her a bit uh, queer-like. Is the girl working? Yes, cashier at White's the Butcher's. I see. Well, what makes you think I can do any good? Well, if you could persuade her to go back home, it'd help. We don't want another Rawlings on our hands, do we? All right, Sergeant. Bring her in and I'll see what I can do. Uh, thanks, miss. Uh, Lawrence is the name. Lila Lawrence. And so Lila Lawrence, played by a very young Diana Dawes, is led in and Flora Robson begins to tell her the story of 16-year-old Gwen Rawlings, who had been up in front of Flora some time in the past. We then go into flashback for the majority of the rest of the film, and that copper we just met is almost the last decent man we meet. As we begin to hear the tale of Gwen's journey from shop girl to criminal, nearly every disastrous twist in the tale happens because of a man. She's sacked by her lecherous pawnbroker boss, supposedly for stealing, but actually for refusing his disgusting advances. She's then beaten by her father for getting the sack and runs away from home to a lodging house where she meets spivvy Jimmy Rosso, played by Peter Glenville. You've got a nerve coming in without knocking. I mightn't have had a stitch on. I wouldn't have mind. Well, I should. OK. Next time I'll knock. There's not going to be no next time. You go back to your own room, Mr... What's your name? Jimmy Rosso. They call me Jimmy the waiter. What's your name? Gwen Rawlings. Miss Rawlings to you, and I'll thank you to get out of my room. What's the hurry? You're afraid of me. Of course not. Then what you look so scared for? Run away from home. That's my business. Like my sister. She ran away from home because that old man beat her. Your old man beat you? Certainly not. Got a job? Of course I've got a job. I'll get you one if you like. What sort of job? Take room girl. In a ladies? No. Look at your frets and coats in the small nightclub. Max is looking for a pretty girl like you. I'll speak to him if you like. All right, thanks. I'll tell him you'll, uh, you'll come along tonight. Swan's Down Club, Soho Yard, 10 o'clock sharp. OK? OK. And so, hopelessly naive and after a humiliating interview with club owner Max Vine, played by Herbert Lom, in which she's made to hitch up her skirt, Gwen begins work at the club. Here she meets Red Farrell, a musician in the house band played against type as the only other half-decent man in the film by Dennis Price. 
When things start to go wrong for Gwen, Red stands by her and even testifies on her behalf in court. So it's confusing, at least to a modern audience, when Red, a married man in his 30s, passionately kisses Gwen before she's led away to custody. The hyperbolic strap line on at least one version of the poster for Good Time Girl is destroyed by six men and a she-devil. And we meet this she-devil, whose name is Roberta, played by Jill Balkan, daughter of Michael, in the approved school to which Gwen is sent. Roberta is wily and ruthless, and she takes Gwen under her wing, teaching her the ropes. Soon, Roberta and Gwen, who is by this time hardened and cynical, run the school, bullying and extorting contraband from other girls. Although somebody must have signed off on that lurid she-devil strapline, the more nuanced message that the film is attempting to convey is that Gwen is a victim and that perhaps the agencies put in place to prevent girls like her from getting into trouble, the courts, probation workers, police and the approved school system, are just as much to blame for her decline as the unscrupulous men she encounters. Although well-meaning, these posh ladies in suits and hats who are responsible for the welfare of girls such as Gwen are certainly underfunded and possibly just a bit clueless. My message to this conference is a very simple one and a very urgent one. Unless we can get more teachers and the very best type of teachers to take up work in approved schools, we are in danger of failing completely in one of the fundamental responsibilities of society. The salvaging of those youngsters whose natural growth has been marred by bad upbringing, bad companions or plain bad luck. There's one case very much in my mind at this moment, a girl, I'll just call her Gwen, who's at a stage when constant care and attention may make all the difference to the rest of her life. So it's undoubtedly a social problem film, but also, according to my second guest, a film noir. That second guest is James Harrison, who was one of the founders of the highly successful Southwest Silence Group in Bristol. James has recently gone on to create Film Noir UK, an organisation dedicated to bringing film noir to the big screen. I spoke to James a few weeks ago and the conversation was online, which is why there is the odd irritating glitch in the audio, for which I apologise. And I began by asking for a bit of background on his new venture, Film Noir UK. Film Noir UK came out of this idea about just celebrating film noir in many ways the same thing which we do for Southwest Science. So Southwest Science is a Bristol-based organisation where we celebrate silent film and showcase it with live music and the, the films on the big screen with some of the best restored prints from around the world. And I was just thinking one day, I was just like, we should be doing the same for film noir because there isn't a dedicated organisation in the UK doing this for specifically for film noir. There's quite a few for silent film. So it, actually, we should be doing this. And I just <laughs> turned around to the rest of the guys. I said, do you know what? I'm just going to let's see what happens and we can go from there. And I realised after a while, actually, film noir isn't just a set of films from the 1940s, 1950s. It, it, it's everything. It's, you know, it isn't a genre. And film noir most certainly isn't a genre. What it is, it's a feeling, it's a look, which kind of expands through the history of cinema from the silent era all the way up until, well, now. I mean, you've got Gael del Toro doing a um, remake of Nightmare Alley. You've also got Blade Runner 2049. 
So it carries on. So our film this episode is Good Time Girl, which I know you've seen. Mm. Does yeah. that fit into the um, film noir, not genre, genre? Yes, I, I think so, because there's certain aspects to it which look perfect for film noir from the outset. So that's the first thing, I think, the look. Also, um, and this is a key thing, it doesn't end well. No. <laughs> that's another key note for film noir is that basically nothing's going to really go down too well by the end. Well, also, we know in this film, don't we, that it's not going to end well because the whole story is a cautionary tale that mm. is framed within this device of Flora Robson warning Diana Dawes not to follow the example of Gwen Rawlings. We can't do spoilers particularly, but we know that it doesn't end well for her. And that's classic noir, you think? Yeah, no, it is. The one issue which I do have with this film is... The Flora Robson, Diana Dawes segments, that, which basically bookshelf either end. And there is this sense of preachiness, which is just like, yes, we don't need this. You can just cut this off. I was kind of speaking to someone recently about Good Time Girl, in fact, and they said, oh, well, no, no, it, surely the BBFC must have seen it and told them to reshoot bits and include these segments. And I was like, well, no, that surely that can't be right, because Flora Robson's a massive name. Mm. Even then, you're not going to bring her in and have her originally in one scene as the judge. Yeah, and also I don't know what, because it's based on this book by Arthur Laburn, which I, mm. I can find it online. It's out of print. The cheapest copy I could find is 28 quid, and um, right. my budget doesn't stretch to 28 quid on the paperback. So I don't know if that's in the original book, but it, it does feel like, it feels like a device in a way to take away from the edge of salaciousness or the melodrama. Yeah. Because the whole thing is watching Gwen's decline and the people around her or the institutions around her attempting to pull her back from that. So she's the main representative of that institution that's trying to prevent her decline. But you're not keen on that then? Do you think that denoirs it a bit? Yeah, I, I think it makes it into just more of a preachy type of thing. I feel like the institutes fail anyway. I think in some ways it makes it look them even worse because what she ends up getting, I don't want to tell too much of the storyline because do watch it. But, you know, she gets three years in this um, proof school. And it's, um, you just think, Jesus Christ, three years. Yeah, it's steep, isn't it? Yes. No, that's that's way too much. The other thing is, it's of course, it's not just the institutions. It's all about these guys who who basically, you know, pushing Gwen to the, the brink, really. Yeah, because she does become quite despicable by the end. She's, doing, she's involved in some quite yeah. nasty crimes. Our sympathies are with her because she's a victim of all these different people all the way through. But then eventually, do we lose sympathy with her because she's gone so far off the rails? I think when it comes to, obviously, the first part and at least the first hour, actually, it is her plus the Institute's basically kicking her down. I think afterwards, when she's at the Borstal, as it were, it turns into her choice and how her decisions impact her getting even more stamped down. Whether or not I sympathise with her, I can't quite be sure. And it's actually, it's a very good question. The people she's hanging around with are still not a very nice bunch of people. And there's actually, in fact, there's one particular segment where she's just by a guy, this guy in the car. Gary Marsh. And and yeah, and even he tries to take advantage of her. Mm. And it's just like, and this guy's just only in it for a couple of minutes. Yeah. Even this guy won't give her a, a, a break. Yeah. So everybody, just, all men apart yeah. from, apart from Red. Apart from Red, Dennis Price. His reputation is kind of slandered in the court because yeah. she says, do you think the club is a suitable place for a 16-year-old girl? No. Do you think your flat is? And he's forced to say no rather than it's, say, actually, I slept on the couch 
you know, he just sort of backs down, which is a bit odd. I mean, he could have had a bit more spine at that point. Well, yeah, um, he is very much the only person who gives her a chance in any way, shape or form or any kind of support. And yet there is something not quite right there as well. And whether or not it's just because it's Dennis Price, and this is a Dennis Price before the bad Lord Byron's, you know, uh, kind hearts and coronets. And you just think, I'm waiting for him to jump out and start doing something really bad. And obviously, that doesn't actually happen. Well, it's apart from one. the snog. Oh, yeah. No, do you know what? I totally forgot about that. That's a bit ropey, isn't it? That's Yes. Okay. Well, no. Okay. How could I have forgotten that? <laughs> anyway. Yes. Okay. Well, he's another one. That's it. Well, there's, there's, <laughs> there's none of them which are remotely... I mean, actually, oh, I mean, anyway. I think he is genuinely trying to do the right thing and... Oh, I don't know. Uh, the, the snog thing, I don't know if that's ill-judged on the part of the filmmakers or is it generally put in there to give him some moral ambivalence or is it just, you know, 70 years on or whatever, we think, ooh, but then it wouldn't have been, ooh. I don't know. It is one of those factors and I think it's a major factor when we look at it. It's, we, it kind of questions everything which we look at mm. now. But, even you know, even then, you know, you kind of question all of the guys in that, in that film really even herbert herbert lom who kind of turns into the the good guy in some ways yeah he's very nasty to begin with isn't he he's yeah show me your legs show me your legs and and you know um peter glenville kind of mentions in passing you know how many girls have you been about with as well so lom's character has got this reputation they've all got this this reputation so it's it's one of these things where it just it doesn't suit anyone this is, you know, it's it it's a hard film to watch even now, I think, at points. On the poster, I think it's the American poster, there is this one particular one that I've used on the website, and the strap line is, destroyed by six men and a she-devil. <laughs> um, so I think the she-devil is uh, Roberta, Jill Bolton's character, because yeah. she yeah. properly leads her off the rails there. yeah no she's she's totally nuts and i was trying to figure out who the six men were and i came up with more than six when i each each yeah. step of her progress there's a man involved have you managed to count up as many as six or more than six or uh, it's definitely more than six i, I obviously count the father yeah uh, by who who actually i should just flag is george carney who died just before the the film had been released and he's also in Brighton Rock. Yeah. And so he's he's got a bit of a rep for uh, being in these dysfunctional young people films anyway. So the father, I'd say, the shop owner, of course. The pawnbroker la- at the beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. You like nice things, don't you, Gwen? <laughs> it's just like, it's a horrible character and a, a great performance as well. And then there's Jimmy Rosso, Jimmy Rosso who, yeah. uh, with Peter Glenville, who is who's just fantastic all the way through. And once again, wants his bit of Gwen. So that's three. Yeah. There's Herbert Lom, and I, I honestly think even if he is the good guy, but you know, in some ways, I still think the line uh, "Show me your legs" is still is yeah. still questionable anyway. So that's another one. And also, you know, he he knows she's underage. Yeah. So he should have just pushed her out and got yeah. got her out of there, but he lets her stay. Then there's the later boyfriend, Danny. Yeah. Who's uh, a right skinflint anyway. And then of course, then we have Mickey. The, you know the American soldier, and he's he's absolutely no good for her whatsoever because he he just takes her on this this crime spree, as it were. And his mate then, Al as well, who's and his and his mate Al, who I guess you could class as the extra, the seventh man, really. Yeah. Basically, all the guys are absolutely yeah. horrible in this. I, I wonder if the fact that it's written part half written by a woman has anything to do with this, or is that 
intrinsic in the source material. Annoyingly, I haven't read the source material because, like you, I haven't got the, <laughs> I haven't got the finances to buy a paperback, which is twenty eight quid. But I wouldn't be if there's certain elements there especially with the women's reform school and also with the mother i think that the scene between the mother when she comes back and she almost she well no she does she tries to get her to come back to the to the home yeah and and gwen says no 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 look you have some money and just disappear there's no point in us both getting beaten up she says doesn't she yeah 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 which is and the scene where she when she first leaves home i find quite moving where She's been beaten up the night before by her dad. She mm. gets up very mm. early to leave, and her mum kind of collars her in the hall, saying, what are you doing, what are you doing? And Gwen is masked most of the time by the mother. You just see the mother, the back of the mother's head, so you don't see the faces a lot, but it's all, all in their sort of physical performances. Yeah. And they have a small embrace, and you can tell from Gwen's physicality that she's about to break down. Until she gets to the, the reform school, it is very much male-orientated again. You know, Jimmy comes in and starts hassling her straight away, and it, and it just goes downhill from there anyway. But you could tell that the 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 beating scene should have been, would have been far more brutal. I think, I think they they cut that right back yeah. a little bit, and and the same with the the um, the later parts. Yeah, the fight the of between Roberta and Gwen in the dormitory is quite brutal. Yeah, and Roberta gives a girl who's standing next to her this sort of backhander right across the face which is quite rough you know it's quite shocking so was the was the violence cut out of it then was it did it go undergo a bit of a snip at the hands of the censor well that's what i've read uh and apparently totally by chance i've I've been reading um anna anna kale's book about diana doors you know and i know you had anna on a couple of uh, weeks ago and and actually Anna mentions in passing that the the censor had cut back the dialogue and I honestly think I think there's a little bit of cutting back with the violence as well because the the bit with smiley Billy who you don't actually see his face I don't think at any point is this is after the after Lom has basically been attacked mm. and there's a brilliant sequence and this in is if you want film yeah if you want to film noir bit if you if there's certain segments of film noir throughout Good Time Girl, but if there's a classic bit, it's Herbert Lom looking at the mirror and saying, "Smiley Billy, you've got something to do for me," and you don't see Smiley Billy's face. And then the next shot is him, his back, low camera, and, and following him along as he's walking through the cafe to beat up Jimmy. And it's, <laughs> he it's, looks terrified. And no, he is t- terrifying because he's he's absolutely terrifying. And there's the guy who plays Smiley Billy is uh, Danny Green, who plays one round in um, The Lady Killers. So he's he's a massive chap. And you can see that physicality is there, but you don't never see his face. And of course, it's Danny Green. So, of course, you'd be absolutely terrified because he's absolutely amazing yeah. in The Lady Killers. <laughs> and he's and it's such a shame they didn't make that character into something more. And I think that's the one frustrating thing with this particular film for me is that it's less reform school preaching us. And more, more of bits because I think the I think the Soho bits really stand out as some really fantastic Brit noir stuff, especially the the lighting of the settings outside, um, the entrance um, going into I think it's the Swan Club. Um, that street part is absolutely amazing. I mean, it's so beautifully lit. Yeah, I don't um, I don't think that's I mean that's I'm sure that's a set. It's a set. Both of those are sets, aren't they? The Soho street scene, the Brighton street scene, are both sets so they've got this freedom to 
make them more noir. And, I mean, it's interesting that Brighton and Soho are both these noir locations in more than one film. I mean, is, is yeah. Brighton the same sort of place, do you think? Yeah, no, no, definitely. I think Brighton, like you said, comes up continuously. Um, Brighton is, you know, Brighton Rock the, with um, with Attenborough the year before, or, or actually, no, the same year. And the, the thing is with Brighton, it's very much uh, like Soho, and I don't want to say it in a bad way. It's, it is, the, the areas seem, on film anyway, very seedy. And, you know, I love both they, Soho they, they and They do both Brighton, have but, a seedy underbelly, don't they? I mean, it can't yeah, deny it. No, they, no, I, I okay, yeah, they, they're totally seedy, so there you go. <laughs> but, but I'm never going to be allowed back into Brighton ever again. You but no, will. Um, I mean, love Brighton, it. Brighton is a sea, the seaside playground for London. I mean, I, that's why you know I've I got plenty of friends who we'd go down to Brighton whenever I was in London, and it was always that type of thing where it was just Londoners having a great time near the sea. Also, Soho has come up on the number of occasions on other crime slash film noir. Brit noir kind of films around this time. So you've got Nightbeat, which is 1947, then Noose, which is 1948, the oh, same yeah. year as Good Time Girl. But I feel that the Soho, which we see on Good Time Girl, you know, it, it seems not quite real. Mm. And then you've got later films like The Small World of Sammy Lee, which is, you know, the next ante up. And then you've got Soho of Beat Girl and stuff like that. It's an indicator, isn't it, to say this is Soho, therefore it has an edge. It's almost like a shorthand without having to set the scene too much. You just say it's in Soho. It's a bit like in the classic film noir where there's a, a flashing neon sign outside the motel bedroom window, you know. It's one of those shorthand things just that indicates, right, we're in slightly kind of rough territory now. It's like night in the city all over again. It's like, yeah. and, and once again, you know, you've got Herbert Lawman now. I mean, how many times do we need Herbert Lawman in a, a, a crime film, a Brit crime film? He just turns up everywhere, that guy. It's funny because I, my first exposure to Herbert Lom was uh, Pink Panther. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then when I start to see him in these earlier roles where he's quite scary and cutthroat, I like, what, is that the same guy? yeah. Yeah, no, he's, I mean, he's, he is quite amazing about how he just gets around. At some point, I really want to do a, a long retrospective of some sort with, with the Film Noir UK because yeah, I think he's, he's, he's not forgotten, but I think everyone keeps on forgetting his earlier stuff. No, I think um, Pink Panther does overshadow everything else because yeah. they were such big films. So uh, if there's one thing that James Harrison is famous for, it's for hating Gainsborough films. <laughs> Sorry, that's, yeah. that's unfair. That's unfair. Yeah. But it, it, this is a Gainsborough film, and it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a Gainsborough film. I mean, what it does. What is a Gainsborough film normally, and you know what's going on here? All you think about with Gainsborough is that title sequence with the lady in the period dress, and then you've got titles which just come slamming out at me. Stuff like the Wicked Lady, the Man in Grey, Fanny by Gaslight, and it's it just all those period dramas. It's just like oh dear. <laughs> I've, I've just literally hit my head has just hit the floor because I'm so bored of it all. And and I kind of another reason why I kind of like Good Time Girl is the fact that I know it's a Gainsborough film, and it starts with the rank organisation Gong, which is a distribution company, and then you go straight into uh, the title sequence. So you don't have the Gainsborough lady at all, and all you basically have is a brick wall with the title Good Time Girl come up. Good Time Girl is very much of that starting block of the change from Gainsborough from the period dramas. You know, they, they still do the odd few, but you've got that coming out and um, more interesting films from from my point of view anyway. 
I mean, I don't know what you think if you're a massive. Well, I don't mind. No, I mean, I I do like Phantom My Gaslight. And the other film that I watched recently in preparation for boning up on Gene Kent is um, 2000 Women, which is another Gainsborough film. It feels like they were evolving away from the from the period dramas, though. Yeah, I mean, it's 2000 Women is obviously the uh, the World War Two women in prison film where you, you you get that change and I, I you know around that time I think they just begin to realize actually we need to start moving away and look at other 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 projects you they also did cottage to let which is I think an absolute masterpiece it's up there with um went the day well I think it's it's a fantastic it's a really nice double bill they of of went the day well and cottage to let so uh good time girl is a possibility that it might be screened as part of a film noir uk season well do you know what since i i saw it during lockdown the the, the, on on talking pictures tv and i was just thinking actually do you know what this would work as a perfect double bill with brighton rock Hmm. and and while gwen's you know situation is a little bit different from pinky's it's very much that that same aspect they all go downhill in this in in this in this way and also they're they're both juveniles as it were so it's it is it kind of brings home about um, these particular issues in in the in the Brighton area, or yeah. the Soho and Brighton area, in fact. So, what's the best way to find out about your future screenings for Film Noir UK? Follow us on Twitter, it, which is at Film Noir UK, and also we are on Facebook, but the, it's a lot more of the Twitter account really at the moment. And also have a look on the Southwest Science website because we have an events page which. Uh, both Southwest Science events and the Film Noir UK pages will be on there. So Southwest Silence website, just have a look at that as well. If you'd like to see Good Time Girl, you can do that at the mere click of a mouse whenever you like, as it's on the BFI player in their free section. Details, of course, in the show notes. Thank you, James Harrison, for giving up your time to appear on Soho Bites. Film Noir UK has just recently presented its inaugural screening at the Watershed in Bristol, a brilliant double bill of Stranger on the Third Floor and The Maltese Falcon. This might be of interest to our Peruvian listeners because Bristol is only 10,001 kilometres from Lima, whereas Soho is 10,164, so it might be a bit more convenient to get to. All the details you'll ever need to know about James, Josephine, Film Noir UK and the BFI are, of course, on the show notes at SohoBytesPodcast.com. If you've enjoyed the programme, I would love it if you could leave a star rating or a nice review. In Spanish is fine if you're a Peruvian, which is very easy. All you have to do is go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes and follow the simple instructions. And please feel free to get in touch with the show with your comments and suggestions via Twitter. We're on at BytesSoho or by email on SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bites produced by me, Dom Delaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing Young. That's all from me. Until next time, <clears throat> adios. Adios.